When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News. Christian, I want you to know people are writing to me and saying how much they're enjoying hearing you again in the afternoon. So thank you for for filling in for Tom, and and people appreciate it. You're going to make me blush. I doubt it. <laughs> right. Uh, I know I, him. He's he's not uh, blushing. He's nodding. That's right. Smugly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to my dreadful little show in my mountain cedar. And uh, I don't get it very often, but boy, every so many years I get this mountain cedar. And I, as I understand it, when you have mountain cedar, it's basically your body overreacting to something. And the way you get over it is you have to calm your body's reaction down the histamines are what we're talking about you have to you have to drink a lot of water and flush it out and basically stand down your body's defense system so apparently the what I'm I'm trying to be positive about this i apparently have an incredible defense system i mean this is like a superpower because it's a it's a full on nuclear multiple theaters of operation uh, response to the mountain cedar. Maybe the cold front will take care of business for us. Anyway, we'll talk about all that, and welcome to the show. This is the craziest story of the year so far, and I'm sure we will have many more. I want to start with this, though. It's not the biggest story of the day, but I just I want to start here, because we can go anywhere from here. Police in the Canadian province of Quebec are warning people not to post ring camera footage of people stealing packages off their front porch. You know, so many people have video doorbells or cameras outside their house. And when they get hit and they get, you know, robbed, they put it on the Internet. And the police say, don't do it. Because you could be violating the privacy of the thieves. That's what they said. You could be you could be violating the privacy of the person who stole your package. Now it's not allegedly stole your package. It's a video. It, they stole your package. And by package I mean the package on your porch. So they don't want people outing or shaming or exposing what I, I don't like to use the term porch pirates. Can we not use that term? That's just a goofy term. It sounds like it sounds like something kind of fun. I hear porch pirate. I think of like Captain Jack Sparrow. Like these aren't people with a gold earring and a parrot on their shoulder. These people are scumbags. Okay, they're dirt bags. They're the lowest of the low. Really, you think about it. People stealing stuff off porches and front doorsteps, Amazon boxes, and and, and uh, you know, UPS envelopes and different things. I mean, you're stealing people's meds, and you're stealing stuff that 
people need for their their training or their schooling or uh you know we're all operating on a tight budget these days it's just it's a it's a really sucky thing to do and i don't think they should be called porch pirates they're not jimmy buffett you know i mean it's it's anyway imagine the idea that the police are worried about the privacy or the feelings of the person stealing the package. I would post it all the more if that's what they're saying. In Canada, we have a presumption of innocence, and posting that picture could be a violation of private life, said police communications officer Benoit or Benoit Richard. Well, I, I think the person that came onto my porch or property and took the box is already that like they've already uh, surrendered the presumption of privacy and innocence and what have you i mean these aren't people that we've picked out randomly this isn't like you you saw somebody walking by and you decided to accuse them like there's stuff missing in the neighborhood and here's the guy we don't recognize so let's call him no th- this is video of the person taking the box or the envelope or whatever it is how in the world do you how in the world do you defend that? And I don't know, I would think putting it up on social media is sort of like see something, say something. It's sort of like it's a public service announcement, right? What do you think? 210 599 There was a story in uh, New York where a, a guy uh, was out for a walk and he saw someone grabbing a delivered uh, package and um you know he kind of he kind of he kind of figured out what was happening and uh saw what was happening and he tripped the guy i salute that but yeah if you have a video uh, doorbell and you want to put that up on your neighborhood site or your facebook neighborhood page or whatever i think you should what do you think have you done that have you ever done that 210 599 5555 uh, Hertz, the rental car giant, announcing today they are selling 20,000 electric vehicles from their fleet. I don't know how many they have total in their fleet, but that sounds like a lot of them. They had announced a couple of years ago plans to vastly acquire uh, Teslas and uh, basically uh, go, you know, not all electric, but I think they, their goal was like 30% or 40% electric by a certain year, now they're selling 20,000 of them. And they're doing it because people don't want them. Because people aren't renting them. And they're reinvesting in gasoline-powered vehicles. This is as sure a sign as I know of that we are right, we the consumers, we the people, have looked at this, we have looked into this, we have heard all the uh, persuasion and arguments, and we, we're, not, we're not interested in this. We're not going to do this. This is Hertz facing reality. They had uh, Pete Buttigieg on Fox Business Network to talk about the fact that electric cars aren't selling. How do you explain that people are voting with their wallets David Asman interviewed him, and this is what he said. Listen to this. 
Cut number five. I want you to know, earlier we had on Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, we asked him about the decrease in electric vehicle sales this year. It's just customers don't want them. Here's what he had to say about that. Roll tape. There's going to be year-to-year fluctuations, right? A year ago, uh, they couldn't stock them fast enough. Uh, now we're seeing more of those ups and downs in, in demand. I don't know a lot of people who think that Americans in 2050 are still going to be driving uh, that old technology, that, that combustion technology that we inherited from the 20th century. What year is it? What year is this right now? What year are we in right now? 2024. Did he just say 2050? 2050? Talk about moving the goalposts. Remember when it was 2025? And then it was 2030. Now, now it's 2050? Look, we don't want them now. I don't know what we'll be doing in 2050. I don't know if I'll even be here in 2050. I don't know where Pete will be in 2050. But people don't want them now. The only way you're going to get this immediate conversion is to force people to do it. That's what no one wants to say, but that's the truth. You will have to force. You've already, you've already basically broken the car companies, but you'll have to force people. You'll, you'll just have to stick a gun in their face figuratively or literally, and say, this is it. Either you're getting an electric car or you're riding the electric bus that we will soon put on the streets. We're talking about that, 210-599-5555. They interviewed Bjorn Lomberg, who we've had on the show before, who's a a, a very realistic kind of... uh, you know, consensus guy when it comes to environmental stuff. And uh, this is what he had to say about what Pete Buttigieg said. Cut number six. Consumers don't want them all that much. Look, electric cars are good for some things, but they're not good for a lot of things. If you want to go far, if you want to be able to recharge really fastly, that's what you can do at a gas station. And for the transportation secretary, not knowing uh, a lot of people who think that there'll be a lot of gas cars around in 2050, he should perhaps just look at the Biden administration's own Energy Information Administration that actually predicts that only about 20% of all new cars in 2050 are going to be electric, unless, of course, politicians go in and demand it otherwise. But that's basically saying we're going to demand people not buying the car they would rather have had. Look, Fundamentally, people believe that we can somehow magically transform into a world where we have no fossil fuels in a very short time. But this is going to be fantastically costly. So uh, two new studies, period studies, show the first time what is the cost of actually going net zero by 2050. That's going to be $27 trillion each and every year throughout the 21st century. Compare this to a benefit of about $4.5 trillion. That's a vast loss. It's a loss of about $1,800 trillion over this. Okay. That's just so you get the idea. A- I mean, it just isn't. It's, it's not really about getting you into an electric car. It's, I think, getting you out of a car. I think it's creating a situation where there will be a lot less private car ownership. I, I, I don't disbelieve that people like Pete Buttigieg, they, they want electric cars, sure, okay. But what I think they really want most of all is just less freedom, freedom of movement, freedom of motion, choice. And if people cannot afford uh, the, the new economy of owning a car, 
then they're dependent on mass transit, which is completely uh, masterminded and top-down from Big Brother. And then you can control everything people do because you can control all their movement every time they leave the house. That's that's heady stuff. That's why these numbers, these trillions of dollars numbers, probably don't matter to the politicians because control is what does. We'll, we'll talk about that. I, I had never really heard of the Living Legends of Aviation Hall of Fame until yesterday. I didn't I just didn't know what it was. The Living Legends Aviation Hall of Fame is inducting Prince Harry for significant contributions to the aerospace industry. Other members of the Hall of Fame include the Wright brothers, Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin. Help me out. Prince Harry is in the Aviation Hall of Fame? I mean, I know he served in the U.K. Uh, Royal Air Force, and I appreciate that. And I know we appreciate our brave men and women that serve in the military, but what did he specifically do that every other military uh, aviator didn't do? What was more heroic? Are these people are, are are all these people in that Hall of Fame? Does does Prince Harry belong with the people that went to the moon or flew the very first airplane? I mean, you might as well just put like actors that have been in movies where <laughs> where they flew a plane, you know? I mean, Maybe just put in actors from, like, uh, Star Wars or something. Uh, put Harrison Ford in there, you know, Air Force One. Star Wars. Maybe he should be in there. He actually flies, right? Prince Harry, Aviation Hall of Fame. All right. Uh, big sports story today. Uh, it was expected, but it became official today. Uh, Bill Belichick appeared at a news conference with the owner of the New England Patriots, Bob Kraft. It was very gracious. If you didn't see it, um, I'll just tell you, very classy, very gracious. Um, they were kind to each other. They were cognizant of the moment. Belichick, who doesn't usually say very much, uh, had nice things to say about Kraft, about the players he's coached, about the fans, about the media. Um, he had some humor. He made a joke that he had not seen that many cameras since the Patriots signed Tim Tebow. It was a nice moment. And people are now talking about legacy and whether or not uh, Bill Belichick was the greatest football coach uh, ever in the history of the NFL. Tom Brady says he is. Um, of course, this comes on the same, literally, it, it, it came down literally in the same news cycle. Uh, it was in the news yesterday when we got the Nick Saban news, and then it was made official today. Um, it's interesting to watch these, and Pete Carroll in, in Seattle, it's interesting to watch these people that um, seemed like they would be there forever uh, stepping away and under the circumstances that they're doing it. Uh, by the way, Belichick and Saban were briefly together. Uh, I don't remember the year, but there's a picture, you can you can find it on the Internet, of them on the sideline, they're both on the coaching staff of the Cleveland Browns. Much younger 
Bill and Nick, but imagine they're both on the same coaching staff at the same time. That's incredible. Anyway, who knows, right? There could be there could be future legends on your sideline right now. You don't even know. I watched the uh, news conference with Belichick today. I, I was very wistful, I have to say, because I grew up in that part of the country um, when I was a kid, and this was way before Belichick and Tom Brady. Uh, we would watch the Patriots at my house. My dad was a big football fan. The Patriots were terrible. A uh, terrible team when I was a kid. To be honest, I think he was watching the game. I don't think he, <laughs> think he was really particularly hopeful about the Patriots, but maybe they'd play a good team and you'd get to see some stars. Um, but I was wistful because this is this stirs up a lot of memories and and, and it's the end of an era. I mean, the Patriots are now just another team. And for a while, they were really something special, and there was something very special going on up there. Um, I I was asked by somebody recently, kind of jokingly or jibingly, well, now we know that Belichick was nothing because it was Brady that was doing all the winning. I will tell you that I'm not much for arguing with people outside of the show. I do argue on the show. When I'm not on the air, when I'm not on the clock, I, I, I just am not, I don't really like or enjoy a lot of debate and arguing. And so I laughed and we moved on to some other subject, but that's actually not true. Um, and let me explain why you can't just say, well, he was nothing without Brady. Uh, Brady was nothing, to be honest. Brady was an afterthought the year he was drafted. He was uh, deep on the depth chart of a very good Michigan team. He was not in the physical shape that he would later be in. He did not have the confidence that he would later have. It's, It's undoubtedly true, and the statistics back it up, that once Brady left the Patriots and left Bill Belichick, that team and that coach was about a 500 or below 500 team. That's true. But I don't know that Tom Brady would have just come into the NFL. Well, I don't even know that he would have come into the NFL. But I don't know that he would have come into the NFL and just been a success anywhere. There is a two-way street of great coaching and great player talent. Uh, the players can't put themselves on the field. The players can't assemble their own roster. The players can't make the depth chart decisions. The players have to be coached. They have to be led. I- examples and expectations have to be set. And Belichick was very good at that. So he created a platform on which Tom Brady performed magnificently. And the world got to see that a guy that somehow all the other teams had missed really was one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. So you have to give both guys some of the credit for what happened while they were both there, while acknowledging that when one of them left, it, it wasn't the same. And people will always, I think there will always be questions about um what might have been, what, what what if the Patriots had drafted better? Uh, what if they had had somebody ready to go when Brady was ready to leave? Sort of the way Green Bay always has 
the heir apparent ready. Jordan Love was ready when Aaron Rodgers moved on. Aaron Rodgers was ready when Favre moved on. Favre was ready. I mean, it, 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 some teams just have that long-term view, and, and the Patriots were not ready. I think, ironically, what did in Bill Belichick, the coach, was Bill Belichick, the general manager, because he was both. And let's be fair, uh, he has to be recognized as a successful and an accomplished coach, and, and so many of his former players are saying that today. No one today, no one today, is praising him as a GM. He was not good at it. And so the guy that stiffed Belichick on the quarterback succession plan is Bill Belichick. But having said that, I think you will find that people who played for him, the, the accolades have a common theme. There was a way of doing things. There was a set of expectations. It's a lot of the same stuff, by the way, they say about Nick Saban. And Saban and Belichick are friends. They're about the same age. They came up through the same systems. They came from football uh, families and traditions and um, in many ways ran their, their programs the same way. Belichick succeeded in other places before he had the long run in New England. Saban succeeded in other places. He was at Toledo and Michigan State and LSU before he went to Alabama. They had, they had something that was more than just a few star players or a lucky break or a talented guy to make him look good. They had something else going on. And it's, you know, it's leadership and it's organization. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think when you think about, um, a moment like this, it also put me in mind today. Do you remember when the when the Spurs were winning? About every other year they'd win a championship, it seemed like. They were always in the hunt. They were always in contention. And that felt like it would go on forever, too. It's not popular to say this or think this way, but you've got to savor moments of, of greatness and moments of celebration because... They always feel like they will last, and then they never really do, right? They're always shorter lived than we think they will be. Even dynasties, which go on a long time, do have an end. But uh, it was a, it was an interesting exhibition today of uh, how to exit the stage gracefully. You could almost you could almost say it was textbook for how to handle uh, a situation like that. It's with um, just so many fond memories and, and uh, thoughts that I you know think about the Patriots and, and I'll always be a Patriot. I look forward to coming back here, uh, but at this time, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna move on, and uh, I look forward and excited for the future. Uh, but always very very appreciative of the opportunity here, the support here, uh, and you know the what Robert what you've done for me. Thank you. I got to tell you, um, if you're not a football fan, that, that's like the most talking today that, that Bill Belichick's probably ever done. Um, he just, he's a man of very few words. Uh, and I'll also tell you, and I, you know, we're all from different places. Uh, probably half the people listening to this show are not from here originally. And I don't know where you came from, and I'm not sure what the sports scene is in your town, but, um, during the era of Brady and Belichick, the Patriots were it up there. I mean, to give you an idea, 
of how big that was. Remember that during that era, during that dynasty, is when the Boston Red Sox ended the curse of the Bambino and started rattling off World Series victories, and that was still only the second most exciting thing happening as a sporting event in that town, in that whole region. These guys made the Patriots, and they made football really big. Um, it'll be, Don and I were just talking, it will be interesting to see where he goes. I, I got the feeling today very strongly, in, in the clip you just played even references it, he's not retiring. He's going to coach somewhere. And they're mentioning uh, a lot of mentions of L.A. and Atlanta. There's a lot of open jobs right now. Charlotte is open. I'm going to throw a couple of weird cities into the mix, okay? I would like to see him go to Philadelphia. I I, I think there's... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not too impressed with that head coach. And if the Eagles somehow get upset by Tampa Bay. I don't know that they're going to stick with Sirianni in Philadelphia. So I know it's not an open job, but I, I, my mouth waters at the thought of Belichick working with that defense and developing that quarterback, that young quarterback. And then the other place, I think he would really... I don't know if anybody could do better with this situation than Bill Belichick, and I'm talking about Dallas. Because I know what people say, well, you, you're you always, you're, you're basically fighting a war on two fronts when you coach in Dallas because you're, you're, you're always getting ready for the, the opponent that week, but then you also have to deal with an owner that holds his own news conferences and, and makes his own, uh, you know, uh, publicly announced uh, decisions about the roster and the lineup. I, I just think when you've coached in the cauldron of the New England sports environment that, that Belichick went into, and he went into a really ugly situation. The Patriots were a, a, a messed up organization after, after Bill Parcells, and there was just a lot of, of turmoil. Um, and they had drafted Drew Bledsoe, but that was sort of hit or miss. And, I think if you can if you can thrive in that environment and in that town, you can handle Jerry Jones. And I think it would be fascinating to see what would happen. Now, the flip side of this is, and we talked about it a little bit yesterday, the pattern you saw with the departures of Belichick, Saban, Pete Carroll is th- this is now the era we're we're in the era of offensive-minded head coaches. So college and pro football is now the pendulum is all the way over on the offense for for now. It'll swing back again, but uh, so in one sense, these guys are kind of not in the in vogue. But I'm telling you, it'd just be very interesting to see where he goes. And there's a lot of possibilities. Uh, speaking of guys that have been around, awkward segue. Did you see Donald Trump in his town hall last night? What did you think of that? I had a funny thought. We were we were uh, kind of kicking uh, Fauci around yesterday on the show because of all the COVID misinformation that he's put out, and he has sort of cavalierly revealed that the six feet of separation was just pulled out of his butt. 
for all the talk about COVID misinformation, he probably disseminated more of it than anybody. And then I watched the town hall last night with Donald Trump on Fox. Now, you know that I voted for him. I'll probably vote for him again. I think he had a good presidency. But, oh, boy, what he's saying about COVID now, can we talk about this? I mean, <laughs> I mean, he is trying to completely erase what a huge Fauci fanboy he was. And I had a front row seat. We sat here and we carried those task force news conferences. Cooper, you remember them back in March of 2020, April of 2020, because we had a, we were on the air. We were doing the show. We would interrupt to take the feed of the news conference. We would sit and we would watch it on the screens. Yes, we would. While we were waiting to see when we would go back on the air. And so not by design, but just by happenstance, I got to see every minute of every hour of those countless joint appearances between then-President Trump and Dr. Fauci. And Trump was all in on it. He said last night that Ron DeSantis was the biggest fan of Fauci. He said last night that he never supported shutdowns, that he's a federalist, and that he supported governors uh, who didn't want to shut down, and DeSantis was not one of them, that DeSantis was a big shutdown guy. And none of this is even remotely true. I'm, I'm glad to hear the word federalist, but Donald Trump was not a federalist, not on this issue. It is true that governors had the power, and we all remember who did what in our own states, and I think most of us are aware of what DeSantis did do, which is not what Trump said. I, I get that they're running against each other, so okay, he's not, he's not the guy that's going to dispassionately report on it, but this is really a stretch, and I don't know if it helps Trump to even go down this road. Like, if I'm Trump and I'm running for 2024, I don't want people to think about what I did in the first several weeks of COVID because it was not what conservatives expect or want. It is sure as hell is not what we ever want to see again. Fauci would say all the time that he and Trump were like, you know, two peas in a pod. They had no disagreement between them. Trump never corrected that or said that wasn't true. He didn't sideline Fauci. He featured Fauci. And even after it was clear that there were other voices being raised and people trying to broaden the discussion and say, hey, what about this, what about that? Um, and, and the Donald Trump we all think we know seems like a guy that would be interested in solutions and pragmatism, and he's, he's normally very anti-ideological. He seems to always be most enthused about the most recent good idea that he's heard. That's how he got on the kick with, like, um, you know, ivermectin and stuff, because he would get enthused about competing ideas. But but through all of that, um, he championed lockdowns, championed Fauci. And I, I, look, I'm not saying that 
I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but what I would like to hear is, we all learned our lesson, it will never happen again, you can count on me. I, I would have no problem with him saying he's learned. But I don't think it's a good look to go on and spend all that time on live television telling an alternative version of events that we all we all remember and, and that's not what happened. I think he's going to be the candidate of the Republican Party. I will bubble in the oval for him. Uh but I don't know. That's that was that was disappointing. The whole that whole period was disappointing and hearing him bring it up as if he thinks it's part of his highlight reel is disappointing. If you can't say you've learned about it and you can't reassure us that look I know that I know that the whole lockdown mentality was destructive and damaging to people and to and to society and to our economy and so as a businessman I more than anyone recognize that we must never let that happen again if you can't say that then don't say anything I'm not I'll tell you when I'm doing it and I'm not at the moment I'm not trying to get extra clicks or eyeballs on the website. But if you have time today, this afternoon, tonight, I would urge you to go to KTSA.com, click on the story about City Councilman Mark White's DWI, and in the story there's a link to the dash cam footage. Now it takes about 25 minutes to watch. It's the whole thing. It's the... We're following this car on 410 all the way through to the uh, various sobriety tests. I watched it, and I don't, I don't, now I really don't know what happened in that story. I mean, when we first heard there was a DWI, and of course our minds all went to, oh wow, this is weird, same district, Clayton Perry, now his successor gets one. He had like two or three beers that night. Apparently, several council people were drinking together, which I didn't know. I really didn't know if they did that, but I guess they do. Um, so you hear the, the the bones of the story, and you think, well, I guess I guess he made a mistake. I guess they they caught him, and he made made a mistake. I, just watch it, and I'm not. I don't, it's not that I have a theory or I'm accusing the the police of anything. But I don't really understand how they derive from that encounter that he's drunk. And um, have you ever been? Have you ever been stopped? I was pulled over like this one time, and it was many, many years ago. I was on at night here on KTSa, and it was a night that I had gone from here on the air. The show ended back then at 10 p.m., and I'd gone to KLRN for the they were doing their blazing saddles, bla- I'm sorry, blazing gavels uh, auction to support public television. So I would go over there and work from like 10:30 to midnight or 10:30 to one, and then I would drive home because I figured, well, I'm already out and I can help out a little bit. It was kind of cool to do a little TV, and and I got stopped on 281, and it was late, and I was tired. And my eyes were bloodshot because my eyes are always bloodshot late at night because I wear contact lenses and I have like a tearing thing. So they're, they're always kind of reddish at night. I'd not had anything to drink except bad coffee. 
But what I remember is how your fear and your anxiety in that moment, which you understand is, wow, I'm really nervous, this is scary, probably looks to the officer like impairment. That's kind of what it looked like to me watching Mark White. He looks scared in the video. I think you'll get that pretty clearly. But I don't, I really don't, I watched it twice. I really don't know how they got from point A to point B on this. And again, I'm not, I'm not taking a position in the legal matter and I'm not, I don't know him personally and I'm not vouching for him. But it's, it's interesting to watch. You think you know until you watch that video. And I, I suspect maybe not everybody, but I suspect a lot of people will rethink what they thought they knew. If they watch it, it's at KTSA.com. It's embedded in the story. I, I got to say this, and I, I know you'll agree. Uh, drunk driving is a very serious thing. It's a very scary thing. Uh, all of us have loved ones on the on the road. Maybe right now, you're waiting for your husband, your wife, your kid. It would be devastating if somebody drove drunk. Maybe you've been in an accident. Maybe you've been hit by a drunk driver. So I, I don't. I don't take it lightly. I want it enforced. I want it looked for. From what I understand, when Councilman Mark White was pulled over, he was speeding and he had made a lane change without a directional. So okay, I get that. I'm not accusing anybody of being out to get anybody. I would just say, and, and, and I'm just throwing it out there for you, watch the 20-minute or 25-minute body cam piece that we have embedded in the story at KTSA.com. And if you need to wait till tonight to watch it, watch it tonight. And then tell me what you think. Uh, tell me what it looks like to you. I'm, I'm kind of confused uh, about what they did and why they did it. And... um I, I, I think a lot of people will agree with me that to be pulled over, I don't care who you are, to be pulled over is nerve-wracking, unnerving, intimidating. It throws you off your game. You've got to be a super-level person not to be affected by that. I mean, your, your heart rate goes up. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's, it changes your whole day. And I'm not saying that the in a situation like that, I'm presuming the police officer is doing everything right, but still, for you and I, that encounter is so far off the norm that it just throws you. And that's what I saw. I saw a guy that looked thrown, um, and I and I get that. Um, Jaime is on the Jack Riccardi Show, 210-599-5555. Jaime, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. Um, thanks, uh, so, I mean, I've watched the video. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I couldn't pass that test even now. I haven't even had any drinks. I mean, the way they hold the pin up for so long, you know, it just seems like there's really no rhyme or reason. They should just do a breathalyzer or something. I don't yeah. I don't agree with drink, drinking and driving to all my right. kids and my family. Uber Uber everywhere or have someone that's not going to drink with you. And I, and I preach that and I live that all the time because, I mean, yeah. I do a lot of driving for my work. I don't want to lose my live my the way i make my income but i mean that that whole test just seems like it's not it doesn't tell you anything i mean he didn't really 
I didn't see anything wrong unless they have special vision or something. But it's like, I, I thought the same thing. I thought the, the same thing you said. I, on, on any given day, I would not be uh, coordinated enough to do all those things. <laughs> I mean, to, I mean, to it, the it's, satisfaction it's a, it's a of, of the test. It's a joke with me at work because we do our stretches in the morning, and I, I'm so unbalanced all the time that yeah. they laugh at me yeah. about it too. So it's just yeah. crazy. But thanks, man. You have a good day. Thanks, Jaime. Appreciate it. Good to hear from you. Steve is on the radio. Uh, Jack Riccardi show. Steve, welcome. Jack, thank you for taking my call. Um, I haven't seen the video, but I have been very, very suspicious of this. Uh, even when uh, they got rid of the first guy, I can't remember his name right now. The guy, this guy replaced. Oh, Clayton uh, Perry. And I even, yes, and, and I even uh, uh, posted on it on one of KTS's little things about this. I don't know if it was you or one of the other fellows, but, but I posted on there, this whole thing sinks to high heaven and there needs to be investigation of how this whole thing occurred. Uh, you're right. You're definitely nervous. And especially if you are the only somewhat conservative council member on that council. Uh, and now you're saying that he was had a few drinks with a few other council people. So I can just see uh, Ron Nuremberg and and a couple of the other evildoers saying, "Hey, why don't we invite this guy out and 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 and, and just tell him, hey, welcome to the the you know, good old boys club. We're going to have a couple of drinks. We do it all the time. Nothing to worry about. You're a council person. Come on, and and we'll buy you some drinks. It needs to be investigated. How many drinks he had at the at wherever he was, or however many places he was. Who bought those drinks?" And yeah. the well, whole evening from start yeah. to finish just smells. I've heard, I, I have heard people say that. Um, I don't know of any evidence of that, but I, I, I understand where you would wonder. It's, it's a very, it's an incredible coincidence, uh, if it's a coincidence. Um, and I guess what I would say, Steve, is just, um, whoever is the next, not that Mark White's going to step down because I think he, I think he'll stay in office, but, uh, whoever is the next District 10 city councilman, will you please just just drink at home and or or don't you know or just don't drink you know just please uh, because yes, there's only one voice of reason at a time on this council and and there's no room for margin for error. H- having said that, I don't I don't believe that that they set him up. I don't believe that anyone was out to get him. Um, I I in fact I didn't even look at this politically i thought more in terms of just how it feels to be in that situation and how it looks differently to me than it apparently did to that san antonio police officer and that's it i i don't have a i don't have a big full blown theory in a 90 minute documentary about what really happened um but i wanted to get your take on it if you've seen it or if you have a chance to watch it tonight 210 Five nine nine fifty five fifty five, and Paul is on the radio. Hi, Paul. Hi, Jack. Good afternoon. Always enjoy your show, Jack. Uh, I, I I've seen the video. I I don't know whether it was a setup or not. Regardless of what what it was or was not, when will people learn? Do not answer yeah. any questions. Do yeah. not agree that you had a drink. Don't say you didn't have a drink if you did. If you did, just don't answer any questions period and don't take the field sobriety test 
regardless don't there will be a time and a place for all of that to run its course i thought you were going to say when will when will people just learn not to drink and and drive period well uh, of course of course but if, if they're going to do it and it's not just about drinking and driving if you're in the neighborhood and you get pulled over because someone called in a suspicious vehicle just right. because you're in a new neighborhood where, where are you, you. Going? Yeah. where are you coming from don't answer any right. questions you're not you're not obligated to answer well, so paul i hear this all the time and we've all heard the videos and seen the lawyers make the videos and stuff why do you think even though people have been told or coached that way what is it about us that when we're in that moment we want to we want to answer all the questions and we want to demonstrate our fitness well, I think because perhaps he felt or, or, or someone feels that, well, gosh, I've only had one. I don't feel like I'm drunk. There's no way that I could possibly be drunk if I only had one or two beers. But it's not really about that. It's about if you're asked, have, have you had anything to drink? The moment you say yes, you've just yeah. made their case. Yeah. Okay. Paul, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, 210-599-5555. Our next guest is a best-selling author and commentator, and his work can be seen in the Washington Times and the American Spectator, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense in the Bush 41 administration, Jed Babin on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Jed, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Well, thanks. Great to be here. Want to run a few things uh, by you, uh, starting with I've been interested since this story first broke. What is your read on the Lloyd Austin going AWOL story? Well, I think it's actually pretty funny because it demonstrates the fact that nobody in this administration values what he said, cares what he does, or has any interest in what he's doing. You know, how can you go? <laughs> a wall for four or five or six days and nobody notices that just means he's irrelevant he's an innocent bystander to what the Biden administration is doing so in other words um he has the title but he's not vital to whatever the you know various uh operations in the red sea or dealing with israel or ukraine he he, he isn't really in because that was kind of the answer Kirby gave the other day. He said, well, you know, we make these we run this stuff. We make these decisions at the staff level and then we bring in the cabinet secretaries. That's what he said. Well, I mean, they don't even do that. I mean, Lloyd Austin may be a very nice man. I have no idea. I never met him. But the fact of the matter is he's as relevant to this administration as a doorstop. You know, he does not have any power. He does not have any influence, and it's again, it's just kind of a show, you know. That the fact that he's there, you know, he he has the definition in in physics. The definition of mass is something that has weight and occupies space, and you know, Lloyd Austin has mass. That's all you can talk to. That's all he's. That's all the relevance he has. So forgive me for not knowing this, but who was the Secretary of Defense when you were when you were in there? Cheney. I was Cheney there when. Was there. Uh, Okay, so nobody thought Cheney was unimportant. <laughs> well, look, we are really very well accustomed to having brilliant, powerful men who are more than noticeable in the Pentagon top job. You know, secretaries yeah. of defense, I mean, Cheney, uh, Bill Perry, uh, God knows Rumsfeld was, was very strong, very brilliant. And, you know, there are 
half a dozen others I could mention, Cap Weinberger. I mean, these people have all been very strong and, and very brilliant and certainly stood tall in the administration. Again, Lloyd Austin, you know, he's just a, he's a, he's not even a placeholder. He just is, he's a mannequin. He's standing there and, you know, looking good. And that's about all he does. As we speak right now, the shipping traffic in the Red Sea is in crisis mode. It's maybe the most underreported story in the news right now uh, in terms of what it's going to mean to kitchen table economics, prices, product availability. Um, There was a great book that came out last year uh, about how one of the most significant things that's changing right now is we're seeing the end of America's sort of guarantee of, of protection for the open sea lanes. We've gotten so used to it. It's what's allowed for our sort of globalized economy that you can have all these products on your shelves from all around the world because America, ever since World War II, has tacitly agreed to keep the shipping lanes open, to keep... Uh, you know, cargo ships safe, and that's changing, and that's going away. And w- what are your thoughts about that? I mean, we're shooting down the drones. We're, we're announcing each day the number of drones we're shooting down, but that that feels like a reactionary, not a proactive way of handling it. Well, you're right, and the fact of the matter is, we're not even doing enough of that. I mean, you have a situation just yesterday, I think, that uh, the Iranians seized a commercial oil tanker uh, in the Gulf of Oman and just made off with it. So you've got the Iranians, you've got the Houthis. The real issue here, and, and I've written about this before, Jack, <clears throat> pardon me, we have a situation where, you know, it's, it's the organ grinder or the monkey. You're going to punish the monkey? No, you punish the organ grinder. This is the kind of thing where you have, for example, uh, an Iranian ship is providing intelligence may actually be operating and guiding the Houthi drones at the commercial ships. Uh, there's another, there's a, uh, an Iranian frigate that has come into the Red Sea at this point. What we need to do is sink the Iranian ship that's guiding the missiles and the Houthi drones. I mean, that's the kind of thing. It's proportional. People are shooting at our people all the time. And, you know, the Houthi drones are attacking us and our, our ships. You know, that would be an appropriate response. Well, I don't think Biden's going to do a darn thing. Now we find there's a late headline I just saw that says that, you know, we're going to be striking at the Houthi ground bases. Well, big stinking deal. You know, why are we swatting flies when we're going to be just punishing the people who are actually committing the crimes against us, committing the acts of aggression against us? Now, what I hear basically what you're saying is here, you know what we should do, but you don't think Biden will do it. Yet I hear people all the time who suspect or fear that Biden wants a war this year because that would, or he thinks that would, uh, benefit his reelection. So if that was true and if they were looking for a tail wags the dog kind of thing, what, wouldn't this be it? I don't think so. I think Biden is thinking in different terms. I think, you know, to the extent he thinks at all, he's probably thinking about Russia and Ukraine, and he's really not anxious. I don't think he's really anxious. You know, any sane person would not be anxious for a war with Russia. And, you know, we don't even really want a war with Iran, but we have to respond. So I don't think he's going to do much. 
I think, again, if he's going, and we are apparently going with the British uh, to strike some Houthi drone bases or whatever in Yemen, big deal. It's not what we should be doing. If we're going to be doing something, we should hit Iran. We should hit Iran precisely and at a, at a particularly you know, proportionate response. And again, sinking that Iranian ship that is guiding the Houthi drones, again, maybe operating them. That's what we ought to be doing. I don't think he's going to do that. I'm, actually, I'm, I'm very sure he's not going to do that because he does not want to. He does not want to anger Iran. He's liable to take on, you know, their proxies a little bit. You know, we've been bombing some of the Iranian and uh, Iranian-backed militias uh, that have been shooting at our people in Syria and Iraq. Uh, and again, big stinking deal. We don't need to be hitting at their proxies. We need to be punishing them again in a proportional way. We don't want war with them right now. But you know what? There's never going to be peace in the Middle East when the Ayatollahs are ruling Iran. Period. End of sentence. Uh, these are the numbers I, I found today. 25% of total world petroleum consumption goes through there. 30% of container traffic in the world goes through there. Uh, 15% of total global shipping goes through there. Am I, are, are we... Are we not missing the bit? This is the biggest unreported story in terms of affecting us, affecting our economy. Oh, I think that's true. I mean, look, the other way, you know, this is the southern route from Asia, rather the northern route from Asia to the United States. It's where an awful lot of traffic comes in, just like you're saying. The other route takes people, takes ships all the way around the Horn of Africa, all around Cape Horn. You know, it's about two more weeks of sailing, very inefficient, uses a lot more uh, gasoline and so forth. But the fact of the matter is we are not acting as we should. We are a global superpower, at least we used to be, and we need to be protecting the sea lanes. This is what protecting the sea lanes means. It means opening them up, not letting the Houthis close them down. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, Jed Babin, but here in Texas, if there's a storm or a hurricane or even a deep freeze uh people go a little crazy at the store they buy up all the bread and batteries and bottled water and i was reading an article today that says that's what's going on in sweden right now because sweden is moving toward nato membership and a swedish cabinet official said over the weekend that people should be bracing for the possibility of war in their country. What's going on there? Well, uh, first off, I understand the Texans get all panicky when the temperature goes below 70. So we call it prepared, Jed. We call it prepared, not yeah. panicky. We yeah, call it prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll, you won't anyway, be laughing when you want to drink a water, okay? Well, all I can tell you is it's about 40 degrees now here, and yeah. that's just fine by me. Anyway, I hear the you. real issue here, yeah, well, what, what Sweden is going through now is a little bit of warfare, not warfare, but warfare, and it's it's likely to not events. You know, it's not likely to break out into a war. I mean, Russia is not going to attack Sweden, but Russia is definitely going to attack more in Ukraine. There are a lot of other NATO countries that feel greatly endangered, and Sweden. You know, they're being held hostage by Erdogan in Turkey and uh, what's his face in in Hungary, Orban. Uh, that they would not be getting, they'd not be allowed into NATO. 
So there's a lot of fear in Sweden that you know, them trying to join NATO is going to precipitate some sort of war with Russia. I don't think it will. It's possible. But, you know, the Swedes are, they're kind of, they're almost unique. I mean, they've been at peace for 200 years. There's no other country, I think, that can say that. And, you know, at this point, of course, they're going to be afraid of war. They're going to be afraid of Russia. And, you know, at this point, all we can do is get Erdogan and Orban to, you know, push push them as hard as we can to get them uh, to agree to the NATO membership of Sweden. And that would solve a lot of the problems. I guess I had always had this idea that Sweden would probably have, like, a pretty cool, like, pretty uh, sophisticated, although, again, not often used, military capability, you know, Saab jets and all that stuff. Am I wrong about that? Sure. No, you're absolutely right. You know, the Swedish have a good, very small uh, defensive capability, and, you know, obviously they would benefit enormously from a NATO defense treaty. So... I think at this point, they must realize that they are pretty much hanging out there. As long as Turkey and Hungary block their NATO membership, you know, they're in danger. And they know, and I, I think perhaps that uh, cabinet minister overstated things. I think he's the defense minister uh, who said that. <clears throat> I think he's overstating things quite a bit. No. Uh, but I think there is the danger. You know, you can never discount entirely the danger of Russia or China or Iran. Or have a dozen well, countries. at least uh, at least they know where their defense minister is, so can't really you can't really <laughs> laugh at them. They've got that going on anyway. Well, they, they Sweden's care. got that over us. Well, uh, they, they apparently care about where he is. We don't. Yes. Yes. Um, on that note, what's the next column about? Uh, well, I think it's going to be something about the dangers of artificial intelligence uh, in respect to nuclear warfare. Um, you know, we're at the point where artificial intelligence is almost at the is almost a reality. And the more people rely on it, the more governments rely on it to make their own to make the decisions for them. The government's making decisions for themselves or having AI do it. That's an entirely dangerous thing. Very so interesting. That's, uh, that's the sum substance of the next column. Look for Jed Babin, Washington Times, American Spectator and right here. And we always appreciate it. Jed, thanks for coming on. Thank you. We're talking about uh, former President Trump's town hall on Fox ahead of the Iowa caucuses, which are this coming Monday night. And it it was, um, I mean, there's a lot of, the guy has a presence on stage and there was a lot of showmanship. But the thing that made it difficult to watch was the revisionist history about COVID. If I'm, if I'm, Trump or I'm advising Trump there's plenty of there's plenty of W's to crow about and remind people of but no the 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 partnership with Fauci and and Burks is not one of those things and people remember what happened you're not you're not telling them a story from 40 years ago he also had some pretty rough stuff to say about DeSantis and look I get that they're rivals and they're running for the nomination, but Ron DeSantis on COVID was the best governor in the country, hands down. And you don't accomplish anything if you're Donald Trump pretending you don't know that. 
In fact, if you're Donald Trump, that's why you liked him back when you did. Mary writes to Jack at KTSA.com, I always respect your opinions, but I disagree a little on this. Trump trusted, respected Fauci as he did with others in his cabinet. We saw many unloyal prior administration, very bad intentions people. I honestly think he's more to the wise, but unfortunately he does not have a filter or eloquent speaking. I I don't I, I agree he doesn't have a filter, uh, Mary, and I agree that he was backstabbed by some people. But again, what I'm just saying is don't go there. If you're Donald Trump, you don't need to go there. Here, here's what you did, um, okay, that, that you can, I think, be crowing about. You built an economy so strong that the only thing that shut it down was the shutdown. You, uh, people can remember when gas was a buck eighty a gallon. They can remember when they were able to put more things in their grocery cart and not have to take some out at the check in, checkout. We, we do remember when new job creation meant new jobs, not Biden watching the jobs come back that the lockdown took away. And there was a time in this country when new job creation meant new people coming into the workforce or reentering the workforce. But over half of new jobs today in America are people getting a second or third job. That's not a... That's nothing to write home about. I mean, unless you're trying to spend more time away from your family, nobody's enthused about having to get a second or third job. So I I would just stick to the things that clearly are wins and not, because I, I, I'm going to vote for the guy, but it's it's wicked uncomfortable to watch him do this. And it's just unnecessary, totally unnecessary, uh, in my opinion. I know a lot of people disagree, and I I get it. I feel it. I I admire your defensiveness of of the president, the former president. But on this, he just did not need to go there. And look, um, it is a concern for me. If he gets back in there, you better drain that swamp. This is it. The swamp creatures have had the scare of a lifetime. No one will ever get close to them again. If you don't get them this time, you'll never get them. I'm not trying to sound Armageddon-ish and this is the last election and it's the end of the world, but look, uh, we've, we've poked the bear. We got to deal with the bear and we got to deal with the bear in this election. It's going to take more than this election. It's going to take more than four years. It's going to take more than one president, which is also why I'm not kosher with, uh, throwing DeSantis under the bus because you need him and you need people like him. And you're going to need him for many, many moons to come. I mean, I'm now at an age in my life when I realize that uh, the stuff that this country needs, I'm not even going to be around to see all of it. So I'm thinking long term. 210-599-5555. The president today, they had the closing arguments in his fraud trial. And... uh, he came out after the uh, hearing in New York and did a news conference. I want to play a couple of uh, clips. This is uh, Trump talking about how they're using this fraud law politically in a way it's never been used before. Uh, cut number seven. After have gone through this for years and years and years, and now we'll see 
if we're going to get an honest verdict. We didn't have a jury. We had no rights to a jury. It's a statute that's never been used before for a purpose like this. I just watched a certain broadcast and they said, you know, they've been looking, has it ever been used before? This is a statute that's a consumer fraud statute, never been used for anything like this before. And it's a shame. It's, uh, it's really a, uh, it's a witch hunt in the truest sense of the word. It's election interference. No victims, all the loans paid back. He said something interesting. A reporter asked him about, and it may be hard to hear the question, but the question is something like, uh, how much time are you having to devote or, or how much time from your campaign are the court cases taking? And he basically says, well, it's all part of the campaign. Cut number eight. Listen to this. President Trump, we're just days away from the Iowa caucuses. What percentage of your time these days is spent on your campaign? And what percentage is spent on your legal issues? Well, see, my legal issues, every one of them, everyone, civil and the criminal ones, are all set up by Joe Biden, crooked Joe Biden. This is something that's never happened in this country. Even when you look at this, this is all about Biden and her meeting. So even the civil ones, this is civil, they're set up by Biden. Uh, every single, just about, case that I'm involved in is set up by Biden. They're doing it for election interference. And in a way, I guess you'd consider it part of the campaign, because if you really look at it, they are doing this. It's never been done like this in this country. It's like we're a third world country, a banana republic. But every one of the things that you write about are Biden indictments. It's a pretty good answer, I think, because the the pundits on television for months have been saying, oh, you can't run for president and be in court all the time. But he his answer to that is well you know when i'm in court i'm fighting the fight it's all it, it's all the campaign because all of it is my opponent i don't know if he came up with that or someone came up with it for him but that's a damn good and i think that may very well be the way a lot of people around this country look at it like well this isn't really strictly speaking some guy on trial this is where they are opposing him this is where the campaign is is playing out jeff welcome to the show good afternoon good afternoon and i think uh on on the uh trump relationship with Fauci, uh he, he's trying to he's trying to play both sides but that's not uh that's a more of a democrat ploy than, than a republican you know he he uh he was in a catch-22 from the beginning he, he he had to do something but i think the best thing he could have done was was nothing but i think uh i agree with you that um he needs to he needs to come up with a better answer if he's going to have to if someone's going to ask him a question in, in a debate you know if he gets the nomination and there is a debate um, and I think he should focus on fast tracking the uh, the vaccine because even though you know the, I guess the jury's still out on whether or not that was effective or not I th- I think that it's going to be hard for the Democrats to say well you know the vaccine wasn't good but they're all about the de- uh, vaccine so I think he could brag on that you know and say you know you know he, he thought he had the best and the brightest with Fauci and. And Berg, but uh, you know, he he was definitely misled as we all were. But uh, yeah, I think he should stay away from talking about that for sure. I mean, it probably. I think you'll agree, Jeff. This election is probably not going to come down to what he did with COVID. I mean, people are hurting, the economy is tanking, prices are crazy. If 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 history's any indication, this will be an economic election which heavily favors him. Uh, I just don't know why he would keep dragging us back to the carcass uh, 
of his relationship with Fauci, which is a terrible look for him. It's the it's it's literally the lowest point of his presidency was was those meetings where he'd come out and they'd be smiling and talking about fourteen days. I, I don't think he had a worse moment in four years than that. Right, and and he the lockdown was the worst thing that it, that could have happened. But and and they're, the Democrats are you know talking about how everything's bad, you know after the or because of the lockdown. But if he didn't have the lockdown, he would have been. Every single death, they would have called, you know, he, he's a murderer. He murdered everybody that died. The, the, they're going to do that anyway. They did that, and they're going to, you know that's what will be said this summer, right? You know that. Yeah. The, yeah, the Democratic yeah, Convention yeah. will have, like, tombstones of 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 COVID deaths. And, you know, they're that that's already going to happen. You don't need to help them. You, know, you right. need to change the sure. subject if you're, if you're Donald Trump, right? Yeah, yeah, you got it. You got to stay away from that topic for sure. Just or come up with a better answer if you, you know, cuz this going to yeah, come up. Either either or. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for calling. Interesting. We were just talking to Jed Babin what uh 40 minutes ago. And just in the last few minutes, uh we have gotten word uh so this is breaking news that uh those uh airstrikes are have been uh, launched. Uh, retaliatory airstrikes launched against the Houthi, uh, the Iranian-backed uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh, they are the ones behind dozens and dozens of drone and missile attacks against uh, shipping vessels, cargo vessels, oil tankers under many different flags in the Red Sea and region. Uh, they are proxies of Iran. Um, there's an interesting sort of history to all this. This group was, I don't know when it started, but under Trump and I think Obama, uh, they were on the terror list. And the Biden administration took them off the terror list. In doing so, they made it sound like they, it was being on the terrorist watch list was, in cord, uh, in contradiction with getting humanitarian aid to Yemen or something like that. I, I vaguely remember the details. But in any event, the previous two administrations seem to recognize the danger. This administration seems to have been asleep at the switch. Now they're, uh, I guess, realizing sooner or later they're going to fail to intercept something and there's going to be a catastrophe that could involve uh, again, an oil tanker. It could involve a U.S. naval vessel or an allied vessel. Uh, so the strikes are underway right now. Uh, we're going to bring you an update from ABC News here in just a minute. Uh, we're told there'll be no word from the president tonight. They called a lid earlier at the White House, so we're not going to hear from President Biden, it looks like. Uh, we're not going to hear from Secretary Austin because earlier today they also said he's still not uh, back at work. So here we are. To return to another topic we had last hour, here we are in the midst of um, a new set of airstrikes, a new phase in the military response to Iran, and neither the president nor the secretary of defense, uh, at least publicly, are taking a hand or speaking on it. I, I don't know that we will know right away how effective this is, but just to put this in perspective, uh, those sea lanes and what travels them, uh, is everything to this economy and to the world's economy. I mean, it's, it's hugely 
important. And so this is not one of those, why should I care? It's a long way away. I never heard of these people kind of things. It's, it's what you pay at the pump. It's what you pay at the grocery store. It's the availability of products. And in a bigger sense, it's that thing that Peter Zihan talks about in his book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, where we really don't even know how reliant we are on U.S. guaranteed shipping lanes all around the world. So let's get this update right here on KTSA from ABC News. This is a special report from ABC News. The U.S. strikes back in Yemen. I'm Andy Field. After weeks of Iranian-backed Houthi missile attacks on Red Sea commercial ships, the U.S. military tonight launched retaliatory strikes against multiple Houthi targets in Yemen, including a mix of Tomahawk cruise missiles and fighter jets. ABC's Mary Bruce on what prompted this U.S. strike. Since mid-November, the Houthis have launched at least 27 attacks, claiming it's in retaliation for Israel's war against Hamas, disrupting one of the most vital shipping routes in the world. 15% of world commerce passed through the Red Sea, major shipping companies forced to sail around Africa to avoid the violence. The U.S. has gathered a coalition of 20 nations to block those ongoing Houthi attacks in the Red Sea that are threatening the world economy. Houthi leaders taking to broadcasts and web videos, vowing a broader war if they were attacked. This is ABC News. From ABC, uh, as we mentioned, um, the United States just... Uh, along with the United Kingdom tonight, uh, conducting uh, airstrikes against uh, rebel targets in Yemen. Again, I don't know how effective they're going to be because the rebels have probably known this was coming for quite some time. They probably have this stuff uh, mobile. I know in a previous visit we had with Jed Babin, not last hour, but I think a week or two ago when he was on with us, he made the point that they would be very hard to hit because they're not... Uh, stationary their their mobile launchers and stuff like that in any event uh this is our basically our undeclared war with iran and this is not even just a consequence of supporting israel this is really the way the the modern economy works when you look around your house tonight you are surrounded by things furniture groceries, consumer goods, electronics that could not have been within your reach or my reach just 50 or 75 years ago. The idea that you can buy a kitchen table that's designed in Sweden and built in China and you put it together in your living room from Ikea, all of this is about that shipping container economy that we have, these Massive ships that crawl along at a few knots an hour all over the world. I mean, think about it for a minute. Ships carrying huge quantities of cargo, almost completely defenseless, not accompanied by warships or convoys like during World War II, just crawling along big, fat targets on the sea lanes of the world, not just... Uh, over in the Red Sea, but all over. And the only thing that's enabled that, as Peter Zihan writes about in his book, the only reason that the economy works that way, and you can go to the store and have 27 different kinds of vanilla to, to buy for your recipe, is because after World War II, 
the U.S. Navy and the United States in general tacitly, subtly said, we got this. The sea lanes will be open. They will be free. And we did it for a lot of reasons. I mean, we didn't just do it altruistically. We did it because, obviously, consumers wanted goods. Um, the world was getting smaller. People were taking an interest in stuff from far away. You know, there's always been kind of like the spice roots and all that. But, I mean, people were starting to realize that they might be interested in owning a car made in another country or, you know, furniture or electronics. But it also helped the countries that we were trying to help off the mat after World War II, when you think about all those countries that were in ruins, both our allies and our former enemies like Japan and Germany, if we had not created a situation where those sea lanes were safe and guaranteed, they could not have rebuilt their economies. They rebuilt their economies by selling stuff to us and to the West in general. It is, somebody described it as basically a conveyor belt or a series of conveyor belts that never stop running that encircle the world. Before that, if you go back a hundred or more years, if you go back to times that none of us who are alive today remember, everything you consumed came from right nearby. Everything was from the, the vicinity, or at least the region of the country that you lived in. There was no... Um, economic incentive or viability to ship a, a mushroom or a particular kind of onion or something halfway around the world. The container ship economy changes that. Other things did too. Uh, you know, there's been people that have, that have written about how transformative it was uh, that we had, you know, diesel-powered semis, uh, rail, the, the explosion of rail and the explosion of interstate highways and highway systems all around the world. That's why China still is very big on going into countries and building out their road systems. It's, it's the shipping container itself has been transformative. But we went from an economy where a lot of little manufacturers made stuff and sold it only locally to the, the idea that you could make something and sell it globally and whether you like that or not, whether that's important to you or not, that is hanging by a thread because of the way we have changed the vacuum of our leadership in the world and the emboldening of other forces and other countries. And I think, uh, I think people will definitely see this if it goes away, but the key, the trick, is to get people to see it before it goes away. Now, some people will use that, and I remember when I read Peter Zihan's book, and I urge, I, I strongly recommend it. It's called uh, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And it's not a pessimistic book like the title would suggest. But when I was reading the book, I realized that, that for people that want forever wars, uh, they're, they're going to love this argument. They're going to love the idea that everything can be justified in the name of, well, we have to protect the sea lanes, we have to protect... The, the globalism of the economy. But I, I, I'm not a globalist. I don't want forever wars. I, and I, I see how important this is. I see how dependent we've become on this. 
Now, the counter argument is people will say, well, why couldn't we just have an economy where we, we, I mean, we're resourceful people, Jack. You know, Texans are resourceful. We have everything here. We have all the, all the natural resources you could ever need. Why don't we just make everything we need right here? Well, actually, we, we probably could. But most states could not do that. And definitely almost no other country could do that. One of the things Zihan says in his book is if this is what happens, if the global sea lanes, uh, if, if that conveyor belt stops, he said it'll hurt everybody, but the United States is the best prepared country in the world to deal with it. He said in most places, in most countries, they'd be just a couple of weeks away from malnutrition, from critical shortages, even countries we think of as very advanced cannot make all their medicine, cannot make all their energy, cannot make all their uh, various vital equipment, can't grow all the diversity of crops that go into a well-rounded diet. So we're this is how we're built now. And that's what's sort of underpinning what you're hearing in the news tonight. Get your reaction to this breaking news tonight on KTSA. Jack Riccardi, the... Uh, U.S. and U.K. airstrikes. I asked uh, Jed Babin, wouldn't it be an incentive to the Biden White House to take military steps in an election year? I mean, I don't mean to be a cynic, but we all know that presidents in trouble look for that kind of, you know, uh, wag the dog thing. And um, he didn't think they would be motivated uh, particularly by that. Um it was the Biden administration, I looked this up during the break, that delisted uh, the Houthi rebels as terrorists. So they're now in the position tonight of uh, bombing uh, people they took off the terror watch list. 210-599-5555. We talked about this earlier. It was just, I think, about six months ago that Hertz, the biggest rental car company in the United States, maybe the world, I don't know, had said, we're going to go all in on electric. They ran television ads. They said that their plan was a quarter to a third of their rental fleet would be electric. It was a very dramatic uh, announcement. It was a partnership with Tesla. It actually... Uh, had a major effect on Tesla's stock value. And they were going to so scale up the demand and usage of electric cars. I mean, Hertz is such a big player that it was going to be good for everybody across the board. It would make, it would make electric, electric cars cheaper. It would lead to a lot more charging stations, uh, maintenance. Hertz was going to really give the EV a shot in the arm. Today they're announcing they're selling more than a third of their existing EV fleet and going to replace those with gasoline-powered vehicles. Reality has set in. And the about-face is not a mystery. People were not interested in reserving electric cars. I had many anecdotal stories of people saying, I went to get a car. Some people sort of don't care when when they... make a, a reservation, like they just know they've reserved a car. 
And so people would show up presuming they were going to get a car they knew how to drive, and they would be told, here's your car, and it's an electric car. Oh, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to start it. I, where, where, do I, where do I plug it in? Where do I, I mean, they knew nothing. They didn't want it. They were afraid of it. And people had situations where they got stranded because they had never had an electric car, and their experience with the rental EV was sort of untethered. So Hertz announced that they uh, have had to, you know, throw it in reverse. And they're going to take a bath on these, obviously. They're going to not get their money back. It's it's really, you know, a microcosm of the whole discussion. It's like you're looking at an industry that, if you know anything about the car industry, it's always been in the desire business. It's always been, I, I shouldn't say always, but let's say for, what, 100 years, the auto industry has been really good at either meeting people's desires or creating desire. Some cases, meeting the desire, I want, I want a car I can afford. I want the freedom of car ownership, Henry Ford, big part of that. And then as the years went by, it was creating categories of cars that people didn't know they wanted until it was available. Nobody knew they wanted a Mustang until there was a Mustang. Nobody knew they wanted a a Chrysler 300 until there was one. Nobody knew they wanted um, some of the other, you know, iconic breakthrough models, the 61 Lincoln Continental, uh, the Corvette, the Miata, more recent example. So they went from that model, we really know people and what moves them, pardon the pun, to we're going to tell people tell them that they have to want this. And even as they're telling us, nope, no thank you, we're going to push harder. And we're going to make a lot of big announcements about by the year 2030 and 35% and 50% and our company will be all electric. And They're taking a bath. I remember thinking when Hertz made that announcement, I'm certainly no expert, I'm a car buff, but I don't pretend to be an expert, but I remember thinking, how is this going to work? Because I know the car rental company model is, you know, they got to be able to make money while it's in their rental fleet, but then they got to make money off it when they sell it. Because they sell all these rental cars. I've owned some former rental cars. You can get a really good deal. How's this going to work? Um, how are you going to rent an, an EV to somebody that just got off a plane and their mind is on the funeral they're attending or the business meeting they're going to, and now all of a sudden they have to learn how to operate a vehicle they've never been in before? It's a, it's a wildly impractical thing to offer in the rental space unless literally people call up and go, I'd like to reserve an, an electric car. But how many people are doing that, do you think? So here's a company, and boy, have we seen this before, that probably got all kinds of cool points from the environmentalists. Their ESG score was off the charts. They, they ran all these feel-good commercials with clovers blowing in the wind and all that. But 
reality hit and they, they got to dump these things, probably at a tremendous loss. By the way, when they do that, and you and I go to rent the next car for our vacation or our business trip, we're going to get soaked renting our, you know, <laughs> Corolla or whatever it is we're renting for our trip because they got to make up for this disastrous decision. Report from ABC News, airstrikes on Yemen. I'm Daria Albinger. The U.K. is joining the U.S. in the retaliatory strikes against multiple Houthi targets in Yemen after months of attacks on commercial shipping vessels in the Red Sea. There have been 27 Houthi attacks on commercial shipping lanes since November 19th, the latest coming Thursday when the Houthis fired an anti-ship ballistic missile from Yemen into international waters in the Gulf of Aden. The U.S., along with 13 allies and partners on January 3rd, issued a blunt warning, saying in a joint statement, quote, the Houthis will bear the responsibility for the consequences should they continue to threaten lives, the global economy, or the free flow of commerce in the region's critical waterways. Karen Travers, ABC News, the White House. The strike's coming two days after U.S. Navy destroyers and planes along with the British warship foiled a major Houthi attack targeting an area where dozens of merchant vessels were transitioning. This is ABC News. Continuing to uh, watch this developing story tonight here on KTSA. And you can join and talk about it at 210-599-5555. This is sort of the... They were asked about it over and over again, and now all of a sudden today they're doing it. Uh, U.S., U.K., airstrikes in Yemen. I I guess I... um, being a history buff, and I read a lot about World War II, one of the things that always strikes me and impresses me about that period of time, and, and let me just say, I know I know that we're looking back on it with hindsight, and when we when we talk about it or we or we read about World War II, it's all sort of we can get our arms around it now. It's all it's all documented and sorted out, whereas the times we're living in are not. So I I, I get that. But it's, it's really clear, and I don't think anybody would disagree, that from very early on, Churchill and then Roosevelt had kind of like a big-picture vision. So they weren't just reacting to events. They made some decisions about how they wanted this to end. Not all of their judgments or decisions were wise. Some of them didn't work out. There was a lot of drawing on maps and carving up countries and creating new countries. And you could you could argue that, that the Allies got a little carried away with that. But the point of it was, if we want to win and defeat an evil, implacable enemy, we got to have a plan. we got to signal to our own people as well as to our enemy, here, we will not accept a negotiated surrender. We will not 
lets you keep some of what you took. You're going to have to unconditionally surrender. You're going to lose everything. We are going to completely, utterly defeat you. You will have to accept that defeat whole. Because think if they hadn't done that, how tempting it would have been for Roosevelt without Churchill knowing it, or Churchill without Roosevelt knowing it, or Stalin, or, to, to do a back-channel thing and, and cut a separate deal. So they knew they had to be upfront and clear, and they also knew, I think, that um, th- there, if you leave sort of loose ends and ragged edges at the end of a conflict, you will have much worse conflict because they were they were watching the, the, the tragedy of how World War One had ended. I don't feel like we have that kind of big thinking. Name me a visionary in the world today of the scope and caliber of Churchill. I, I don't think we have one. And And our politics today is so instant gratification that there isn't even any reward if you were that person like let's face it the way politics works not only in our country but every country is you just got to get to the next election you just got to keep people at bay you you just got to keep the keep the uh the internet mob from consuming you and there's not really much reward. I mean, I'm talking a good game here, but w- what would be the payoff? What would be the reward if you said, well, I have a 20-year plan? I was also thinking as we were looking at this story tonight and thinking about these drone strikes on container ships and tankers. Do you remember, um, this would have been in the 80s, um, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, attacked a hotel in England where Margaret Thatcher, who was then the British Prime Minister, and her cabinet were meeting. It was an attempt to kill the entire British government. If it had worked, it would have decapitated the British government. This was, I think, in the mid-'80s. Somebody can check me on that. And she survived it, barely. But that was the origin of the old saying... We only have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky all the time. An IRA leader said that. We only have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky all the time. And then that was repeated, I think, I forget if it was Cheney or Rumsfeld who said it after 9-11, that the terrorists just have to occasionally be successful. But when you're defending against terrorism, you have to be 100%. So... The shipping lanes that are at stake tonight and have been for years and where shipping is now paused and this is going to affect our supply chain and going to affect our prices. It hasn't fully yet. This is an example of that. And I I, I wish our men and women in the military, Godspeed. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly rooting for them. I don't agree with this president. I don't trust him. I don't have confidence in him. I hope our, our forces are successful. But this is like a needle in a haystack. Whereas they only have to have a little bit of success or an occasional success, 
And like BP, one of the biggest oil and energy companies in the world, has already said we're not we're not going through the Red Sea anymore. The biggest transshipper based in Taiwan has said that. And Israel is worried because if you think about where they are, the only way to resupply them is via shipping. So if transshippers don't want to go, you can talk and make promises to Israel, but you can't get things there. And so this is why the shipping is targeted where it is. This is why it's dangerous to dither. And um, we cannot shoot down every missile and every drone. And the shipping companies know that. The, look, the success rate has been very, very high, very good. Technology is incredible. This is all very new technology. But like the IRA guy said, we only have to be lucky once. 210-599-5555. It, it's, it's also, this is one of those moments where you, you really, if you let yourself, you get very frustrated about the naivete of the left. You know, you have people, and I know you know people like this, and maybe you talk to people like this, or you have them in your family, or you you argue with them on Facebook. You have people that think Trump is the greatest threat. You have people that think Republicans are the greatest threat, or evangelicals are the greatest threat, or guys on talk radio are the greatest threat, or Israel is a genocidal uh, country. We, we, we throw the term war crime around just to describe stuff we disapprove of or disagree with. Uh, the, the naivete, the staggering naivete of these people is, you, you can't even find the words. And it's kind of otherworldly. I mean, it's not just that we disagree with them, it's that we, you want to you want to take them by the shoulders and shake them. Do they still make smelling salts? I always see those in old movies. I never I've never had smelling salts. Do they still make smelling salts. Like, give them some smelling salts. What are you What are you on? What are you thinking? And what does our military say? And I, again, not our men and women in the military, but our when our generals testify before Congress, what do they say? They go and they testify with a straight face that the greatest threat, the greatest danger, the thing that, that keeps them awake at night is climate change. How am I supposed to feel about that? And it's not just they're concerned about it, they're hysterical about it. So there's like a hysteria and a naivete and the certainty that they're right and a kind of blissful ignorance of the way the world works. Because they're not attacking our climate, but they are going to change our way of life. And um, there was a time when at least there were people. I mean, like Churchill wasn't always listened to. He had he had really a small window right during World War II where people were like, "Oh yeah, he's right." He know, but most of his if you know anything about his career, most of his career he was 
on the outside looking in, not that he wasn't in the government, he was, he was, he spent decades in politics, but he was usually a guy people thought were, was wrong. And then he had this moment of vindication. Um, and of course we've also had it, and this is something Peter Zihan talks about in the book I was referencing earlier, We've had it so good for so long that we don't know how we got it this good. We don't really know how it came to be that we could get a table from Ikea. We don't, people don't think about that. Why would you think about that? So he says, when we lose it, we're all going to be in shock because we just think it's permanent. But it really is only the last 50 to 75 years that the global economy has worked that way. On today's JR poll... The question sponsored by River City Oral Surgery. Are you dreading or looking forward to the coming cold front in Texas? 71% say they're dreading it. 29% are looking forward to it. New poll question tomorrow. We go live at 4. George is on the Jack Riccardi Show on KTSA. Hi, George. Howdy. Hey, I just I was listening to your program about the Houthis. And what people have to realize is there's two things going on. There's insurgencies and terrorism. And there's a real good book called The Accidental Gorilla by Kill Cullen that Uh describes both. And you have to have different operations for counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. Agreed. Uh, That is a great book. I, I think that a lot of what our politicians do these days, George, is really not aimed at who it's aimed at. It's just sort of a a light show they put on for the voters. You know, oh, we're using some planes and we're using some technology and see, we got it covered. But I don't think there's a lot of there there. No, I worked in civil affairs, both in Bosnia and in Baghdad. And I had the privilege of having dinner one time with our liaison who was born, raised and educated in Baghdad. He was a veterinarian and his guest was the commanding general of the Iraqi army. And he said, civil affairs was critical because you have to rebuild their economy so their people would be busy plowing and growing and building instead of blowing us up. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good uh, point. Say the name of the book again for folks that want to check that out. It's The Accidental Gorilla. Right. And um, the other one that's real good is the Counterinsurgency Manual that was written by General Petraeus. Okay. So... If you you know, it's like I worked civil affairs and on pediatric nurse. <laughs> you know, and it was well, and this stuff is so old. I, I remember you, George. I know oh. you've you've called me before. Um, th- this even you go back to like when we first got into Vietnam, we were trying to figure out what the French had been doing with the counterinsurgency, and you know, it's always you're, they always train for the wrong war, or they always fight the last war, or and like I said, a lot of it is done for. Domestic consumption rather than actual effectiveness. Uh, it's a great point. Thank you. Appreciate your call. Appreciate your service. Um, before we go tonight, um, I do want to encourage you, if you get a chance, uh, to go to KTSA.com. Check out that Mark White uh, dash cam uh, video that we talked about. It's embedded in the story about his DWI stop. See what you think about that. We may talk about that tomorrow. Um, and I wrote a piece tonight about... Um, it's called What I Learned from Watching Football with My Dad, because when the, um, 
New England Patriots had their news conference today, and the Bill Belichick era was, uh, you know, they brought the curtain down on it in Foxborough. I, I, I had a lot of memories of um, Sunday afternoons in our living room, sitting on the Sears Roebuck furniture, watching the old Zenith TV, uh, and watching football with my dad. My dad would not talk much during a football game. You're not supposed to. But I remembered many years later the things he did say. He would always point out that Tom Landry was a gentleman. He really, really admired Tom Landry. And Roger Staubach. Called him a Navy man. He, whenever Rocky Blyer would be on television for the Pittsburgh Steelers, he would always remind us that guy is playing with only part of a foot because of a grenade in Vietnam. He would make observations that were about the football game, but were really also about life. And I think that's one of the things about sports. Um, when people watch sports, when people talk about sports, it's, it's, it's usually not just sports. And it certainly wasn't for me growing up with my dad. So if you have a chance, I would love for you to check that out at KTSA.com. I hope you have a great night. Come back here, join us live at 4 tomorrow on KTSA.